Today we'll hear from the inspired songs or song of the psalmist in Psalm 22. We just sang one of the psalmist's songs. And once you've found the passage, I'd like everyone to stop for a minute. Look up here. If you can stand looking up here, I I won't make it real long. And think about something that maybe you don't think about often. Maybe you suppress these kinds of thoughts. And to some degree, I don't think we should necessarily dwell on these, but think back over the past decade of your life. Maybe some of you haven't lived a decade yet, but maybe five to ten years of your life. Think back over them and identify a time or a situation where you felt abandoned by God. You felt like God wasn't there. He had left you. He didn't care. Was there an event or series of events where as you were going through them, you felt that God was letting you down? Today, we're going to read one of the most vivid expressions in all of inspired scripture of abandonment. And we sit here in this climate controlled room pretty, pretty much on our padded chairs, most of us having eaten a meal within the last couple of hours. And I don't want us to risk not connecting with the psalmist and his abandonment. I don't want us to see that as something different, something separate. And that's why I ask you to do something maybe uncomfortable, to think back over a time where you felt perhaps similar to how he is expressing his feelings. Total abandonment, spiritually and physically drained, socially cast out, in a word, forsaken. And I pray God uses today to direct our hearts to him during the next time we feel God has left us. And maybe someone here is feeling that way today, that God has left you. God doesn't care. He's not answering you. Well, times like that will come in this fallen world. Let's pray that God directs us to him. Now to the 22nd Psalm. This is the word of God. The heading of this psalm, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. 
be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would show us from this vivid, this, this unfettered, this, this strikingly transparent psalm. Pray you would show us how to express ourselves and how to respond when we feel forsaken. God, I pray that you would not be far from us. And that any here who feel far from you today, that you would allow them to see, allow us to see the change in the psalmist. And ultimately, God, we pray that we would see your son. Your son who took on this abandonment expressed here in Psalm 22, took it on himself when he was on the cross. We pray that we would connect this to the gospel truth. And that, Lord, we would continue 
to embrace that truth as our own. We pray this in the name of your Son, asking your Spirit to come to use my faltering lips to proclaim your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Today in our text, we have this guttural cry from the psalmist. At the same time, this cry expresses both a deep personal faith in God. My God. It's not calling God by some impersonal name. It's He's saying, my God. But at the same time, it expresses a strong sense of being utterly abandoned. This question, why have you forsaken me? We hear the cry. But do we see it? Should we see it as a model for, for our own cry when we feel exactly the same way? We believe, I think most of us believe in the reality We believe in the truth of God expressed in this book, but we do so often in the abstract. And when the circumstances of life come in, we have difficulty making what we feel, what we're experiencing, connect with what this book says. And for me, the big question this text raises is, will I be authentic with God in working through my own feelings of desertion, my own feelings of him not hearing or answering my requests? Will I continue to seek God when I'm frustrated, when I'm hurt, when everything seems like it's falling apart? That's why I've entitled this message, Abandonment and Authenticity. It's not right, but sometimes in the Christian community, we are tempted to put on a happy face and deny our feelings when we're in public. The problem with that, and there's many problems with that, but one problem with that is we start to actually deny our feelings to ourselves, and eventually to God. We don't bring our true selves to God anymore. We polish ourselves a little bit, express you know, to God what we think he wants to hear. This is not a healthy path, brothers and sisters, toward wholeness, toward the integrity that Steve Green talked about a couple weeks ago. This divinely inspired psalm gives us a better way. And my claim is that God gives us here in Psalm 22 three truths to embrace whenever we feel God forsaken or abandoned. And by his grace, I believe he'll show us these in the text as we follow the psalmist and Christ in these times of life because they will inevitably come for all of us. But before we dig deeply into these truths, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork first, and this is unfortunately too long of a section in my notes. I'll just be bluntly honest with you, and this is often my my downfall. So I'm going to try as best I can to summarize but still communicate what I think are some key truths just about the Psalms in general, just to give us a little bit of background, um, a little bit of groundwork. Well, first of all, I, I have already mentioned Christ, and just to get the just to get the um, talk about the pink elephant in the room, you, you've probably, you've perhaps already thought of Christ in relation to this psalm. You've already 
recognized perhaps, but the opening phrase was something that Christ did cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And other events described in the psalm, we may be able to start connecting the dots and see that seems really close to what Christ went through. You see, friend, Christ experienced this sense of abandonment when he hung on that cross. And I believe he was quoting directly from this psalm when he made that cry. But if you were to study this psalm and you were to get some books and some commentaries, you'd find, as I did, that there's this debate over since Christ claimed the psalm, can we really say it's about the psalmist anymore? Can we say it's about us? Or is it now Christ's and his alone to be about? And before joining that debate, I'd rather not do that and lay to you all the details, but I, I want to express what I feel the Spirit wants us to hear today, what he wants me to preach today. And that is that we need to start with the psalmist David's experience. We need to start with what he was feeling, what he was expressing. And then in what ways we can connect that to our experiences. And see through those how Christ's experience of abandonment transforms all of that. So I feel like we need to get both sides. So stick with me. We'll get there. These psalms were written primarily as personal songs or personal prayers to the Lord. Think of David as the original singer-songwriter, many of whose pieces probably only hit the charts after he died. And I'm speaking a little tongue-in-cheek there. Obviously, they didn't have worship charts. But most of his songs were probably his own expressions of faith to God, which he wrote down in some form. And later on, in some way, they began being used in the temple as people would gather. And these became the songs of the community to God. But that's not how they started. And they were written as poetry. They were they're carefully crafted works of Hebrew poetry. And since it's different from other genres we've studied recently, so we looked at Genesis. Genesis is primarily historical narrative. We've looked at James. James is, is largely didactic. It's a letter teaching people, teaching um, the church. And since it's a different form of literature, it merits somewhat different way of looking at it. A, a simple literal example of this is if I were to hand you a piece of paper and you start reading it and at the top it said, Dear Sally, the first thing you'd ask is, you'd, my name isn't Sally, but after that you'd realize this is a letter because letters start with Dear Sally. And you would read that letter that starts with Dear Sally very differently from what you, when you, from if you had read once upon a time, because we read fairy tales differently from how we read letters. And in the same way, or in a very similar way, different genres in Scripture are meant to be communicating different things and should be studied slightly differently. So, so since this is poetry, I want to briefly point out two key marks of Hebrew poetry. We've seen them already as we've read this psalm. We see them as we read other psalms or other Hebrew poetry in the Bible. These are parallelism and symbolism. And before you think you're back in middle school English, sorry, Doug, this will be a short refresher. But I do hope it's helpful for our understanding and our application of the text. So parallelism and symbolism. Again, I'm going to try really hard to summarize and be brief. 
Parallelism is the way that many of the Psalms are broken up into couplets, little pairs of lines. And if, if your Bible is like mine, they're actually broken up that way on the page. And you wonder why they're wasting so much paper because there's a lot of white space in the Psalms. It's because they're trying to show you that pattern. It's key in how we read it. We don't just put it all as one block of text on the page and get the same idea as we read. Instead, these couplets give us some symmetry because most of the time the first line of the couplet and the second line have something very, very intricate to do with each other. Think of it like a modern-day rhyme. These don't rhyme when you read them in Hebrew, but it's like a rhyme in the way the first part matches with the second part. So here's an example from Psalm 19, probably a verse you've heard. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You notice those parallel parts? Day to day, night to night. Pours out, reveals. Speech, knowledge. There's a pattern there, a symmetry. Each half is a counterpart to the other half, helping us to determine the meaning. The parallel structure carries through all of Psalm 22. One example, in verse 19, if you still have your Bibles open to Psalm 22. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. The Lord, in the first half, is referred to in the second half as you, my help. So it kind of gives us an idea of who he's referring to as his help. Because in the first half, he called him Lord or Yahweh, the personal name for God. Perhaps not more clear than saying just God, come and help me. But it does communicate something different to have this this poetic structure. It's more emotionally compelling, I would argue. Symbolism is similarly used to add color, to add emotive impact to the psalm. Examples of symbolism are things like metaphors, referring to God as an archer, as some of the Psalms do. God isn't really an archer, but he is like an archer. There's things about an archer that can be compared to God. Or similes, when you use like or as to refer to to some attribute of someone. So when the psalmist in, in our psalm, Psalm 22 is referring to those who are at his throat as being like dogs, being like wild bulls. There's not really dogs or wild bulls that are surrounding him. He's referring to the evildoers. These are metaphors for the wicked. Or when he refers to his personal body as feeling like being poured out like water. This again, he's not really pouring his body out like water. And in case you're curious about the use of these images in the Psalms, this was helpful for me. It's a brief quote. The Psalms are rich with images. Of course, imagery is something we meet throughout the Bible. We meet it in Isaiah, a lot of the prophetic literature. So we meet it throughout the Bible, not just in the Psalter. However, images occur more frequently in poetry than anywhere else in the prose portions of Scripture. Why are there so many images in the Psalms? What do they add to the message of the Psalms? First of all, it must be admitted images are not as precise as literal language. If you're looking for precision, rarely would we choose an image. But precision is different from accuracy. A metaphor may be less precise than a literal sentence, 
and still be completely without error. To say something like the enemy is ruthless and cruel is more precise than to say the enemy is a lion. Would you agree with that? If I were to say the enemy is a lion and it weren't an actual lion, both of them are accurate, but one is more precise. Why not be precise all the time then? Why bother with images? Well, whatever is lost in precision in an image is gained in vividness of expression. When we use poetry, when scripture uses poetry, it's communicating to us a vivid image. And the images, as in poetry in general, speak to us more fully than literal, regular language. They stir our emotions. They attract our attention. And they stimulate our imaginations. So within the Psalms, there are multiple different types of Psalms. I'm not going to go into all of them. There's Thanksgiving Psalms, hymns. This is a lament. We sang just before this um, message. We sang a lament. One author referred to a lament as the psalmist cry when in great distress he has nowhere to turn but God. This particular psalm is referred to as an individual lament. There can be community or national ones. This is an individual lament. One person in trouble and usually written about a single event that he's asking for God's help in. Well, as we look through Psalm 22, I don't know about you, but none of the things described here match up with anything I know about David's life. There's no time in, in David's life where I could specifically pinpoint and say, this is what he's writing about. So it's more likely that this is a collection of all of David's difficulties. Perhaps when he was running from Saul, the, the king who was trying to kill him. It may have been an entire lifetime collection of calamities. But whatever the situation, David's at a place in this psalm where he cries out to God. He bears his heart to his creator. And where most laments cover a difficulty, this one includes three primary difficulties. It's like a trifecta of lament. He was feeling abandoned by God. He was being mocked and threatened by the wicked. And in the middle of it all, he was physically failing. His body Felt like he was shutting down. So let's look at this actual lament here in Psalm 22. It includes at its beginning a cry, an invocation of God's name, my God, my God. And then it continues into another common part, the request or the plea for God to help. These are common components of, of most laments. Then it describes, beginning in, in verse 6, verse 7, it describes the complaint. But through this all, through the entire psalm, there's an expression of confidence in God. Even in the middle of his feeling forsaken by God, he reminds himself continually of who God is, and what he's done in the past. The problem he faces in the first 22 verses of Psalm 22 
is how to come to terms with the fact that what he observes in his situation is different from how God has acted in the past. Why God, this now, when you have done this for other people in the past? And as a result, he starts referring to himself as a worm and not a man. Because if I were a man, God would have already delivered me. What's striking about this psalm is after those first 21 verses, starting in the end of verse 21 into verse 22 into the very end, is this extended period, this extended section of thanksgiving, of praise to God. And I don't know if it felt this way to you as, as you read it, perhaps in preparation today, or as you read along as we, as we opened. It almost seems like verse 22 and on come from a different psalm. Like, like someone made an ac- had an accident in the, in the printing press and these two pieces got smushed together. Initially, it feels like they were stuck here on accident. It's such a drastic shift. Such an abrupt change of mindset from his situation of needing to be delivered and then his praise of God in the second half. It's not just that David ends up praising God alone, but he calls on his brothers in the congregation to do so with him, to join him. Then eventually, he was surrounded by his enemies before. Now he's surrounded by the worshiping people of faith, joining in the praise of his God. Once this is going on, this this diverse celebration of God's deliverance extends out to the nations beyond the the worshiping people of Israel. We see this international, this global celebration of God's deliverance through to the end of the chapter. And it even starts talking about future generations are going to hear about this deliverance and they also are going to praise and worship God. It's a diverse celebration. It's coming from the rich And the prosperous, it's coming from the poor, the needy, the dying. So this single psalm takes us from the depths of despair to the height of exuberant praise of God. The psalmist must be on to something that we need to hear. If he can take in this one psalm, take us from from the depths of despair all the way to this this joyful praise at the end. I mentioned before that we're going to talk about three truths. I see from this text and how it's used in Scripture three things that we should combine together in our hearts when we struggle with feeling abandoned by God. I don't want us to see this as a grab bag of truths, as, yep, I'll take that one, nope, I think I'll leave those other two. Those, Those are kind of tough. We can't pick and choose which ones are good for us. Although for most of us, each one of these is going to take time to put into practice. It's going to take meditation on God's word. It's going to take study. It's going to take effort. But we pray that God would transform us to be the people he wants us to be through his word and this psalm. So let's take a closer look now at the first truth of the abandoned. The first truth, if, you have no, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. My feelings are real and should be taken in all of their rawness 
to God. What I'm feeling is real and should be taken in all its rawness to God. We see an authenticity in the psalmist's cry. He really doesn't hold much back here, does he? This is, Stephen wanted my title, this, this is David unplugged. He is being desperate before God. He is being authentic. You could even say clingy. He's being confident, but at the same time, he's despairing. He's being theologically sound. He's being hopeful. He's someone who really wants God to show up in his situation, but is seeing no evidence of it. When we look at this text, I don't think it's appropriate or helpful to look past this the, the tattered emotions and cry of the psalmist. We shouldn't look past that and, and jump right to telling people in their struggle, you need to ignore those feelings. Those aren't real. Just, just forget about that. To suppress or pretend that these feelings don't exist is like ingesting poison and then not calling poison control for help. The feelings are there. Those feelings are real and they must be dealt with. What better thing to do with our feelings of despair than to cry out to God with them? To do that privately in your own personal time with God, to say, God, this is what I'm feeling. I don't see you. What's going on? To do that also with other Christians you trust. to pray with other Christians, this, this heart cry to God. And in saying that, I hope you don't think that I'm saying to bring others in to gripe and complain at God. No, nor are you dragging others down with you, but you are together seeking God in the middle of those feelings. In our dark days, in our dark hours, what do our prayers look like? I found a quote that says, Abandonment or alienation is the experience of suffering. When one hopes for deliverance, but no help is forthcoming. And in this experience of alienation, prayers become authentic. Is that your experience? Do you find your prayers becoming more authentic, more real? While this psalm isn't given as a textbook on prayer, It does provide, I think, some helpful patterns in our prayers to God, ways we should increasingly be bringing ourselves before our Father. And here are a few ideas from this psalm for authentic prayers. The first is to pray on the basis of your relationship with God. The first two verses of Psalm 22 include this phrase, My God. Three separate times. My God. My God. This is an expression from the psalmist of faith-filled dependence. The psalmist, as a child in the presence of his father, is pouring out his heart. In the intensity of his sufferings, there's no other recourse than to cast himself on his father. 
And in the Psalter, one person wrote, my God is actually equivalent to my father. This prayer of my God is recognizing his relationship with the God of heaven. Also, pray in light of God's character. In verse 3, yet you are holy. Verse 28 praises God for his sovereignty, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Pray in light of God's character. Remind yourself in your prayers of who God is, even if you're not seeing it at that moment. Also pray remembering God's actions in the past, his actions on behalf of others. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Pray remembering God's actions for you in the past. On you, I was cast from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. As we think about our own prayers, ask yourself, as I did this week, whether or not your prayers are really expressing your true heart to God. I'm afraid we often pray, I often pray, but I've heard someone else pray. I hear that. I think that that was good. So I parrot someone else's words to God. I think at some point in our lives, many of us become parrots. We stop really praying to God at all. We get self-conscious about how we sound. Maybe we want to impress God or others in how we pray and the words we use and The length has got to be just right instead of just letting our hearts cry out to our father. We forget that praying is talking to someone who, first of all, already knows us intimately. And second, cares more for us than we can even imagine. But as a result of forgetting those things, we either don't pray or pray behind a mask. I thought some words that Paul Miller used in a praying life were very helpful in this regard. He said that private, personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. Remember, legalism is trying to change our standing with God based on things that we do. Private, personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. In order to pray like a child, you may need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. Taught in quotes, because... Obviously, we wouldn't teach people to not be real with God, but we really end up doing that, I think, over time in our Christian walk, being less personal, less real with God. In bringing your real self to Jesus, Miller says, you give him the opportunity to work on the real you, and you will slowly change. I think a lot of this has been focused on application, but again, I ask you to think back on that time when you felt abandoned by God, if if you were a believer at that time, how did your prayers change? How did the way you sought God's face adjust maybe during those times? Were you more authentic? Were you more recognizing the reality of your feelings to God? I think for me personally, I find that I don't pray like this often enough. It's rare that I pray with tears streaming down my face. 
in utter desperation for God to act. You might ask, what might a prayer like this look like? We have one example in the Psalms, but what, what, if, what if my marriage is struggling? What, what is a desperate, real prayer going to look like? Well, it's going to be different for every person, obviously, because you're expressing your, your heart to God, but it may start with, Father, my marriage is in shambles. Being honest with God, not pretending everything's okay. He knows better. And then expressing your desperate need of God to work. May God give us hearts, grace and truth to seek him boldly because of Christ's work to bring us access to his throne. Even when we're beaten down, when we're scared and tired and don't feel him there, bringing our real selves to God. And that may match some of the situations in this psalm. When you feel abandoned by God, when you think that he's not intervening to deliver you from the difficulties you're in, maybe he's not answering the prayer that you've been praying for years. You feel like he doesn't care. Maybe you're experiencing some sort of persecution as the psalmist describes. Maybe you're getting made fun of, mocked, despised by others. Maybe you're being victimized by the wicked. Or maybe you're not. This isn't one of my primary applications, but maybe you're not getting taunted by the wicked when you're going through a hard time. You're not hearing, he trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Is it because people don't know you trust in the Lord? So experiencing persecution from others. Maybe it's just this sense of being personally overwhelmed, physically failing, nearing collapse. Your heart, like the psalmist describes, is like wax melted within your breast. In each of these situations, keep coming to God in Christ with your desperate plea to him. The second truth of the abandoned that I find in this psalm. My remembering and anticipating God's deliverance are critical steps toward praising him while in the middle of the struggle. That was a little long, so let me repeat it. My remembering, so looking back at the past, and anticipating, looking forward to the future, God's deliverance. These are both critical steps toward praising him in the middle of the struggle. For the psalmist, this prayer is a, is a tension. He's going back and forth between what he knows about God and what he's experiencing. And we mentioned it earlier, but in verses 3 through 5, God's holy character has made him worthy of Israel's praise in the past. And the word trusted shows up like a drumbeat. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. and you, they trusted and were not put to shame. In some ways, remembering what God has done in the past is painful for the psalmist. It brings, the way, it brings to mind the ways God's people have been delivered And he's not experiencing that now. He's reminded of how it's different 
but he also remembers God's care of him from the beginning of life. In verses 9 and 10, you took me from the womb. On you I was cast from my birth. He's saying here, God, you've taken care of me in the past when I wasn't even able to ask for it. You helped me when I wasn't even cognizant of you and your work. You sustained me with life from the beginning, God. And now this current situation is here. I need you to do it again. The first 21 verses of Psalm 22 imply that the psalmist is currently under attack. He's currently distraught. These are all present tense verbs that today, right now, his strength is failing. That no deliverance has occurred yet. But the final verses, 22 and on, are written also in the present tense. And that's confusing to me. How is it that he is currently under attack? He's currently being persecuted. Currently his strength is failing. But at the same time, he is currently testifying to God's deliverance. These are both happening at the same time. I see only one resolution. That in addition to looking back at ways God has been faithful to his people, that the psalmist at some point begins looking forward and anticipating a deliverance which hasn't even happened yet, but praising God as if it already has. Yes, that's right. As far as I can tell from the text, the psalmist starts believing with confidence these truths that he's reminding himself about God. Even in the middle of the ordeal, this crossing point of verse 21 doesn't hint at anything that's changed other than there's a different set of facts that he's also including in his mind. God, I feel this way, but this is your character. This is who you are. So remind God, brothers and sisters, of his acts of deliverance in the past. Explicitly petition God to change, to be near to act. And then we can begin believing our own argument that God will respond. We can start talking that way to ourselves. God is always great. God is always worthy of our praise. Even in darkness, we need to cling to his constant character and his past actions. And God's deliverance of his people from sin and from death is a great place for all of us to start. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel, that God has delivered you from your greatest struggle with sin at the cross. And then from that, begin unpacking God's ongoing work. So is this blissful ignorance of reality? I I expect that some may be thinking that right now, that I'm saying we just need to ignore the current situation We need to ignore our feelings of being overwhelmed and pretend they don't exist. And and let me say that that's not what I'm saying at all. But we do need to replace the truth we feel with the truth we know. We need to begin embracing a greater reality based on confirmed truths about our God. Think of it as the difference between listening to yourself and talking to yourself. 
we need to begin letting God's revelation take control of the conversation in our hearts. So we need to include in our prayers where we're being authentic, we're being real with God about the way we feel, include expressions of confidence in God. And begin trusting that you will give us the faith to believe them. This is what we mean here when we sometimes refer to the term preaching to yourself. This is reminding yourself of truths that you may not even currently feel. And preaching to yourself, especially the message of the gospel, is so important because our default state is to doubt God. Our default state is to doubt the truth of the gospel. It's too good to be true. We need to preach it to ourselves. We need to preach it to each other on a regular basis. And since we're talking about the gospel, let's go to the third truth of the abandoned. And this comes when we consider Christ's usage of this psalm from the cross. Christ took this psalm on his lips and gave it a fuller meaning than that expressed by the human author alone. So the third truth is that Christ was forsaken on the cross as my sin bearer to ensure that I will never be abandoned by God. Christ was forsaken on the cross as my sin bearer to ensure that I will never be abandoned by God and to bear with me in my trials. So it would be good to ask ourselves, did the man David know he was writing about a future king and not just his own troubles? Did he know when he wrote Psalm 22 that the Messiah was going to come and fulfill major portions of this? I think he probably didn't. But remember, there's both a human and the divine author that inspired the psalmist. And there's a few places we could go to. Let me go to them briefly that that authenticate and validate us applying this psalm in this way and connecting it to Christ. First of all, Luke 24. The disciples hadn't been reading their Bibles this way, but Christ said specifically, the psalms are about me. Luke 24:44. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. So Christ is saying the Psalms are about me. The Apostle John refers to part of this Psalm and he explicitly says this was a fulfillment of David's prophecy. John 19:24. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments. So John sees Psalm 22 as a fulfillment or as being fulfilled in Christ. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he referred to David, the psalmist, as a prophet and how he foresaw Christ's future resurrection. And then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, the the author of Hebrews puts other words of Psalm 22 into Christ's mouth. And he says that he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then he quotes a portion of this psalm. So Christ himself is claiming to be in the Psalms. The apostles themselves are saying this was about Christ. This was the, the, 
situation that Christ went to on the cross is a fulfillment of this passage. So taken together, I'm convinced that the New Testament authors saw this as a prophetic passage of Christ, both of his crucifixion and also of his resurrection in the triumphant last half of the psalm. So whatever the psalmist expressed, and he was feeling real feelings, whatever he expressed about his personal suffering here in Psalm 22, using symbolic terms, using extreme language of his outer and his inner turmoil, this was vividly and literally fulfilled in the work of Christ. There's some ways where we can look at this chapter and wonder how it can even be about someone else because the connections to Christ are so crystal clear. So here's a few examples, though, to remind us of what Christ suffered for sinners. We've already talked about he he cried the cry of verse 1 from the cross. Matthew 27:46. about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Christ experienced the shame and the humiliation of mockers when he was on the cross. Verse 39 of Matthew 27, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Just like in verses 6 through 8 of the psalm. He experienced the physical horrors of crucifixion, which even though it wasn't even invented at the time of the psalmist, he seemed to understand those physical strains in great detail, the thirst, the emotional exhaustion. When Christ expressed in John 19:28, I thirst, it's very similar to what the psalmist said in verse 15, my tongue sticks to my jaws. And even the division of garments by casting of lots, mentioned in verse 18, there's a beautiful Similarity, even in the final words of Christ. Some, some have even thought that Christ may have recited this entire psalm from the cross because Christ's last words before he chose to give up his life to die were, it is finished. Look at the last words of Psalm 22. He has done it. Very, very close to... The same idea. Christ experienced the utter horrors of this psalm, but he also experienced the deliverance that the psalmist describes. The deliverance from death in his resurrection. The worldwide joyful response to the deliverance of the abandoned one in the psalm was made possible only through the work of Christ. The answer received in the psalm can be seen as the Savior being delivered from the power of death and redeeming his people to exuberant and worldwide praise. These outward spreading waves, like a rock you throw in a still pond, these outward spreading waves match the outward direction of the Great Commission from Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost, the ends of the earth. In fact, the passage covers all aspects of Christ's ministry as prophet, as priest, and as king. As a prophet, he proclaimed his deliverance. As priest, he suffered on our behalf. And as king, he reigns over all things. What what glorious gospel truth is here 
in this 22nd Psalm of David. So what is the application for us in this third point? Because we do feel abandoned at times. But Christ was actually, in point of fact, abandoned. God did not physically turn his back as if he were a person who could direct himself in one way or another. But God did not answer his son as the sky went dark. God did not answer as he poured out his divine wrath on Christ for the sin of man during those hours on that bloody and despised hill. And because Christ was abandoned, as he bore my sin, because Christ was abandoned, he took my abandonment. In taking my sin, he also took my abandonment because in that, God does not abandon his children I believe we should see ourselves also united with Christ when we suffer. Remember the apostles, when they first started preaching the gospel, they got thrown in prison, and they got let out, and then they started preaching again, got thrown back in prison. Remember what in Acts it says, they were rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer in that way for their Savior. They saw a union with Christ in their suffering, Because Christ suffered, they were suffering too. And Hebrews 2, we don't have time to go there, but Hebrews 2 also speaks of Christ, the one who is the founder of our salvation, made perfect through suffering. And through that, we are also sanctified in our experience of suffering. So the psalm gives us three truths to take together. May we take them as healing ointment for our difficult days. What is God leading you to change as you respond to trials? Do you need to bring your real self to God in cries of dependence as David did? Do you need to remember God's past deliverance and begin anticipating him delivering you if he chooses out of your current situation? Do you need to keep embracing Christ, the one abandoned for sinners, the one forsaken for us? Do you need to embrace him in your times of feeling forsaken and feeling insulted and at the end of yourself? And in that, reminding yourself that you can never be abandoned because he was. And as we, church family, the redeemed and the repenting, come in a few minutes to the Lord's table, as we turn our attention, as we've already been focused on the work of Christ and what he's done for us in his abandonment, but as we turn our attention to remembering in this significant ordinance of the church, the praise at the end of our psalm is like a model for what we do when we take the elements of the Lord's table, the bread and the cup. One commentator, Mays, says that this psalm suggests we think of the Lord's Supper as a thanksgiving of the lowly. It's instituted and defined by a lowly one, Christ, our Savior, 
and it's shared by the lowly. And this term, lowly, refers to those who conduct their lives in dependence on God. We come as the poor recipients of undeserved favor from God. We eat together and drink the cup in remembrance of Christ's work on the cross for us. And we also rejoice with other believers at the deliverance of Christ from death and decay when he was raised at the end of three days. We see this accomplishing our resurrection as well. The table here is for all. We say this every time, but I want, I want everyone to know it's for all who have turned to Christ in faith and repentance and who are seeking to live a life that reflects ongoing repentance by His grace. You don't need to be a member here, although we encourage you to align with a local body that preaches Christ as the only antidote for sinners like us. But this is a time for all the people who profess faith in Christ and live a life that reflects that faith to come together to eat the one, remembering the one who was abandoned for us. And in his cries, in his cry of abandonment and in his cry of accomplishment, let's now join him in celebrating. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that as the team comes in just a minute to lead us in music, I pray that as our attention is fixed on the work of your Son, that you would remind us that we are going to experience times where we feel abandoned. We are going to experience times where we think, although it's not true, we think that you have forgotten us. May we, in those times, may we today remember that your Son took that abandonment for us. May that change our experiences where we feel forgotten. And Lord, may this celebration, may this remembrance of your work on the cross and your resurrection from the dead give us new hope for the lives we're called to live here on this earth. Lord, there will be struggles. There will be struggles this week for many here that we don't know about. We don't anticipate today. Who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? But we have a Savior who knows. We look to Him now in hope and in faith. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.